You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. Let me get all my various accoutrements straightened out here. And uh, while I'm doing that, let me say welcome to the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. I am not the pastor here, um, and I think most of you who are new here, or maybe if you've been here a few times, you'll be thankful for that here in just a minute. But Eric is, um, I think he's in town, but, but he's not here this morning, so I am your fill-in. I told Chris when I got here, he was rehearsing with, with the team, and I said, well, we have the B team, the B team uh, worship leader, and he reminded me we had the C-team pastor, so um, (laughs) it's actually, like I told him, it's actually much worse than that, but um, despite the deficiencies of your speaker, and like Chris said, we don't believe you're here by accident, Eric says every week that we believe the sovereign God of the universe has brought you here for a reason, and the reason is he wants to speak to you here through his word um, among his people. And I want to take a few minutes or just a minute here before I start and do something that I've done every time I've I've spoken here, and that is to say um, how thankful I am and how honored I am to stand right here. Um, Every week this space is filled by a guy who is uh, really without equal in my mind. And so I love him. I appreciate the fact that he asked me to do this, but he is excellent in every way. He is up here every week to teach us and to lead us. He's honest about his foibles, and that's a really rare thing in a pastor, but he is also leading and loving us uh, very, very well. And I say this every time, too, and I say this as often as I can wherever I'm at, and that is that my wife and I, we love this place. Um, we, we, I've told you this um, at least two or three times before. We do. We love everything about this place. We love the elders that God has, has put over us to lead us and shepherd us. I, un- I don't know why they're not up here instead of me or Chris. It's apparently Deacon Sunday this morning, but, but we love them anyway. We love Mike and Eric and, and Matt, and we're just thankful to be here, um, to be with you, and we, are, we think our, ourselves to be very fortunate in that regard. Now, before last week, I thought my charge was to preach a psalm. That's the typical pattern here in the summer is, is the psalms. But last week, to my great delight, Eric went to Philippians, and I took that as permission that I didn't have to go to Psalms either, so I, I will not be preaching a psalm uh, this morning. Um, if I've deviated from the rules, I will certainly give up um, all of my pay from today um, uh, for, for, for doing so. Now, there is a tremendous freedom in being given a microphone and an audience and no paycheck, right? So I don't have to care what you think, and I can literally say anything without fear of any kind of consequence at all. And I, I may very well take advantage of all of your grace before we're done here this morning. Now, most of you know that Steph and I, we have three kids, Jed and Izzy and Jules, and we, we typically sit right over here, and they make noise, and, and I try to make them be quiet, and I make more noise by, by trying to make them be quiet. But having three kids is an adventure, right? It's primarily about survival, though, for all of us, for us and for them. But Steph has done uh, a really great job of trying to mold these little hearts and to lead them towards Christ and away from the sins of their father. But one of our children uh, is adopted, and maybe you know, you know that too. He knows that he's adopted, so when he's in the second service, I won't be traumatizing him by, by telling everybody that he's adopted. This is not something that's new to him. He has always known that he was adopted. This is part of of his story, and he he knows about it in total. Um, Jed knows that without him, I would be alone in a house full of women. Um, So I am extremely thankful to have him around. Even our dog is is a girl. So we've got no men other than Jed and I, and we really do lean heavily on each other. He's my baseball buddy, my travel buddy, my constant golf buddy, and to say that he has been a blessing to me would be a massive understatement. And I think he knows that. Now, his adoption was both the culmination of a long journey for us, 
a road that began before we even got married. When we met, my aunt had several foster kids, and, and because of that, Steph and I knew right away that we wanted to, at some point, expand our family through adoption. We didn't expect it to be with our first kid, but hey, sometimes the Lord provides in ways that you don't expect. Jed just sort of showed up on our doorstep, and, and, and he was ours. But Jed's adoption was also the beginning of our understanding of life outside of our middle-class world, right? So we grew up in you know, stable environments, middle-class families, pretty easy existence. And so we get married, and, and we're married for a while, pretty easy then too. And then we, we meet Jed when we're both almost 30 years old, and really that was our first exposure to this world outside of ourselves and gave us some exposure to how complicated and how difficult life is for some people. Now, adoption creates interesting questions and interesting opportunities in a family. Now, some would disagree with our strategy, but Steph and I have been radically honest with our kids about his adoption, about Jed's adoption, and our girls know about it as well. So we have always been honest with them about everything in an age-appropriate way. Now, our kids know that Jed's biological mother was young, that she was homeless, and that she found us because she had no means of taking care of him. And they know that we love her, that we are concerned about what happens to her, and they know that we keep pretty constant, pretty continuous tabs on her to make sure that she's safe and that she's taken care of. Now, at least partially because of Jed's background, we have always thought it was important to try to expose our kids to things outside of this middle-class world where we live. Now, when you start exposing your kids to difficult things, you lose some control over their innocence. But the perspective that can be gained is invaluable to them and to you. They learn something about the world, about the difficulty of getting along in the world for some people, and you get to see this through the simple eyes of a child what these difficulties look like to them. And they help you really cut across a lot of walls and rules that you have created to make your life easier. These kids have a real habit of asking you, after you've taught them some principle, they have a real habit of asking you a hard question about why are we not following the principle right now? Like, why are we not doing this thing we've talked about? Why are we not doing it right now. Now, as we have exposed our kids to a small sliver of the world, certain themes have developed that we use at our house to, um, as a prism, sort of, that, that we view the world through and how we interact with the world. These themes have created patterns, and the goal is for us to react to a situation in a Christ-honoring way. We hope that we have ingrained in ourselves uh, behaviors that would be Christ-honoring. And we don't always succeed. But these principles help all the way from the oldest to the youngest help us respond to these encounters in a way that would be God-honoring. Now, an example of one of those principles or themes is this. And we don't say this to the kids so much yet because they're not quite old enough, but Stephanie and I have a habit of saying, don't be surprised when sinners sin. Right? It's not intended to be trite or to downplay the importance or severity of sin, but to remind us not to be surprised when someone sins against us because it's not unexpected. You do not have to like sin when it comes to your doorstep, but if you understand that it's part of our shared humanity, um, it's much easier to accept it without being dismayed, right? And I want us to think about one of our family's themes this morning. The theme comes from the very first pages of Scripture. And as a family, I believe every one of them would tell you that this is the most important thing, most important theme that we talk about at our house. Um, now, before I start, let me say, um, th this is probably um, more my wife than me. She's a better parent than I am. I'm an, I'm an atrocious par partner in parenting, right? So she's doing all this forming and making and working, and I am coming behind her and undoing most of it by laughing at all the things I'm not supposed to laugh at and saying all the things I'm not supposed to say. So when I say this is what we try to do, please understand that we are successful probably less than half the time in applying these principles across 
our life. But this theme is, I think, the most important. And it's um, important in how we treat other people. I hope it is in whether they are clients in the office or friends at school or, or, or folks down here around the foundry. But the theme is found in Genesis 1, starting in verse 24. For the scriptures record, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. Now let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the day. I thank you for these people and for this church and for our pastor and for all the folks who you have set over us to lead us. And Lord, I pray that you will um, use your word to impact your people. And Lord, I pray for, for us um, as sinful people. I pray that you would forgive our sins, Lord. And you know that um, my sins are many. And I pray that you will um, forgive me of my own failures. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, if it's not obvious, the theme that we hope underlies everything we do and say at our house is this idea that people are made in the image of God. Right? That people are made in the image of God. The ten-cent theological word for this is imago Dei. And this morning I want us to consider what that is what it means that we're made in the image of God, and then I want us to consider some of the implications of that concrete reality. Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar or an expert on the Torah, but I am going to take a stab at explaining what I think this passage means. Now, send all of your emails to eric at Bethelbible.com, or if I really foul up, you can cc fritz at Bethelbible.com, and they'll take care of me. But the focus this morning for us will be in verses 26 and 27. And those two verses are especially interesting when you contrast them with the beginning, the first 25 verses of this creation narrative that we find in Genesis 1. In the first 25 verses of Genesis, God is doing His creative work. He is creating by His Word. And the Spirit, we're told, is hovering over um, all of the things that are, that are taking place. Now, good Trinitarians like us can see all three members of the Trinity here in Genesis 1 at the very beginning of this story. And I love the idea that on the very first page of Scripture, now looking at the, the Scripture as one total canon, we can see that, that all three members of the Godhead are there in Genesis 1 at the very, very beginning. Now, verses 24 and 25, can you put them back up there, Mark? Thank you. Uh, verses 24 and 25 are indicative of this pattern that we have in Genesis 1. That is, God speaking and things appearing. So God says and then things show up. But then in verse 26, we reach the sort of crescendo, the, the, the ultimate uh, piece of this creation narrative and things have changed, right? In verse 26, it's no longer, and God said, and it was so, and now it is, let us make we have the explicit involvement of all three persons of the Trinity in this creative act. If God had followed His established pattern from, from earlier in Genesis 1, this would simply say, let there be man, or let earth brought forth man. But for creation's crown jewel, God's crown jewel, this thing that He is going to create now, that's not good enough. There are two words that He uses here in verse 26 and then in verse 27. Number one, He says, let us make... And in verse 27, verse 27, it says, So God created. Make and create. This word translated created here is communicating something that I think is important. In Hebrew, the word means to shape, to mold. And up to this point, the created work has been largely impersonal. Right? This is God creating for Himself an environment to enjoy that reflects His glory. But here we are in verse 27 and he is, or 26 and 27, and he is shaping, he is fashioning, and he is using himself as the model. This is a remarkable thing to think about, right? 
A remarkable thing that the sovereign of the universe creates this perfect playground. And then he creates man in his image to rule and to reign and to have dominion over this perfect playground that he has created. Now this word image evokes, um, in Hebrew, would evoke the idea of a representation or of a statue. Now, we have had lots of discussion in our culture of late about the meaning of statues, about their appropriateness, about um, their purpose. But I think we can at least agree that a statue is in some sense designed to communicate some level of, of veneration, some respect some reverence for the person or idea that it portrays. Now, my favorite statue sits just across from uh, the, the White House, just across Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House. And it's in Lafayette Square. It's a statue of the Frenchman Marquis de Lafayette. Now, and I, I wish I would brought, I have a picture of Jed, my travel buddy, standing right in front of the statue, but I, I forgot to, to bring that and include it. The statue was erected in 1891, and the craftsmanship of the statue is beautiful. It's incredible to think that it's, you know, 130 years old or whatever. Um, but the reason I like the statue is not primarily about the craftsmanship, right? Lafayette was born in the south of France, and he inherited a large sum of money from his uncle when he was just a child. And by the time he's 19 years old, he has decided he's going to come to the United States and he's going to fight alongside George Washington in the Revolutionary War. So at his own expense, at 19, he sails from France to the United States and he takes up arms uh, alongside General Washington. Now, like most of us, Lafayette was a complicated guy. He hits the shores of, of, of the U.S. and he immediately sees the sort of weird juxtaposition of a people who owned slaves fighting for freedom. And he was incredibly complicated. He was desirous of glory. That's one reason why he came here was because he wanted glory. Um, he was also a staunch believer in the cause of liberty. Um, and he was a, as a good Frenchman, he was a avowed hater of the British. Now Lafayette died in 1834, and this statue... Um, was erected some 60 years later, and his status as a hero in 19th century America is unquestioned. Okay, so after the revolution is over, Lafayette is an old man, and he comes back to the United States, and he does a tour of all 24 states at the time. And as a result, we have dozens of counties and cities and streets in the U.S. that are named after him, that were named when he came back here, just as a way of honoring the man. Now, this statue in Lafayette Park, the goal of it, like most statues, I think, is to reflect something of the greatness of this person that it portrays. To communicate to us what a great man that he was, that Lafayette was. And I think it's fair to say, too, that one of the goals is for us to see this statue, to look up at this statue, and to be reminded of Lafayette. To be reminded of what kind of guy he was and what he stood for. And in so doing, that we will respect him all the more. Now, in the same way, Adam was an image designed and fashioned to reflect the greatness and grandeur of the glory of the one who created him. Now, why in the world would God do this? Why would he, why would he put his image, implant his image into this feeble, feeble creature like Adam? Now, I'll quote John Piper to summarize the why of this. And he says, when the first chapter of the Bible says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is the point? The point of an image is to image. Images are erected to display the original, to point to the original, to glorify the original. God made humans in his image so that the world would be filled with reflections of Him. Images of God. Seven billion statues of God. So that nobody would miss the point of His creation. Nobody, unless stone blind, would miss the point of humanity. Namely, God knowing, loving, and showing Himself. 
Now, it should also be noted that images have limitations, right? The statue of Marquis de Lafayette is only one very narrow representation of the man. It's not the same as the 400-page tome about him that I read, right? It doesn't tell you everything there is to know about Lafayette. It tells you and communicates probably at most one or two ideas about this complicated guy. We are similarly limited in reflecting our Creator. We are not an exhaustive picture of what He is like. We don't have that capability. So you shouldn't walk out of here today and look at your spouse and think, this person, if you were married to me, you would know this right off, this person is the exact imprint of, imprint of God's nature, of everything that He is. That's not what they are. That's not what image bearers are, not what they do. And we're not capable of bearing that kind of weight. Now you might be asking yourself, what about the fall? So God makes man in his image in Genesis 1, and then Adam messes it all up in Genesis 3, and paradise is lost. How does the entry of sin into the world impact the image of God in the image bearers? Now some have said that um, the image of God in Adam was destroyed when sin entered the world. To that I would say hogwash. Um, it's not to say that the fall doesn't change things. It changes everything. The fall changes everything about the way that we image and reflect and relate to the Creator. But in Genesis 9, so well after the fall, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So far from indicating some destruction of the Imago Dei in, in Adam, God prescribes special punishment for the shedding of man's blood because the image of God is present in man, even after the fall. And in the New Testament, James talks about our tongue, and he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So we have James affirming the presence of the image of God in people after the fall. So what is the impact of the fall on the image of God? One theologian has put it this way. While we humans still bear the divine image after the fall, we presently do so in a tarnished, defaced, crippled manner. We have gone bad, like rotted wood. We are corrupt, twisted, and splintered. The corruption manifests itself in a thousand ways. Physically, as from the moment of our birth, we begin to die. Intellectually, for we think and reason, but our thoughts are often dark, hurtful, confused, and self-serving. Relationally, for we love, but we anxiously demand to be loved in return, and we often love what we should hate and hate what we should love. Relationally, or volitionally, for we, are still, we, we can still discern right from wrong, yet our moral awareness is hazy and unreliable, and our will is vitiated. In biblical terms, we suppress the knowledge of God we suppress the knowledge God graciously gives us so that outrageous behaviors ensued. We hate the light and we love the darkness instead. And the world is filled with havoc that results. So the presence of God, the image of God is still in us, but it is tarnished and it has been damaged by the fall. So I want to think about three implications, though, of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Three. The first is, I am made in the image of God. And you should say, I am made in the image of God. I'm not talking about just me. I'm talking about all of us. Some of you struggle with believing that you are valuable. Maybe someone who should have known better has told you over and over again that you aren't, that you have no value. Or maybe you've struggled professionally or relationally or in some other way. And because of that, you've convinced yourself that you aren't valuable. Many of you no doubt remember the popular Saturday Night Live character from the 90s, uh, Stuart Smalley. Remember Stuart Smalley? So Stuart Smalley was um, an effeminate, I'll say, self-help guru that had a show, which was really a, a recurring skit, on Saturday Night Live called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. Sort of a Jack Handy meets uh, Oprah Winfrey kind of thing. <laughs> and 
At one point during one of his darker moments, Stewart says, I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to cancel the show. I'm going to die homeless and penniless and 20 pounds overweight, and no one will ever love me. But many of you probably remember his most popular line, which actually spawned a book of affirmations, and that was, can you repeat it with me? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And of course, uh, the people of Minnesota went on to elect Alan Stewart Franklin to the U.S. Senate, which I guess at the time seemed kind of weird to us. But what Scripture says about you is far better than what Stuart Smalley would say about you. Scripture says that you were fashioned, that the sovereign of the universe made you. But even more than that, he used himself as the model. And because of that, every inch of you, every aspect of your character is imbued with God-likeness. You are not God. You are not a little g-God. And though marred by sin, you are the primary way that He has chosen to image Himself and to reflect Himself and His glory in this world. This is both amazing and terrifying. Now the second implication is that you are made in the image of God. I am not the only person on the face of the planet that is an image bearer, though sometimes I am confident I act like I am. The reality is that you, the other members of this church, are image bearers. And this concrete reality that we are all made in the image of God gives us a fundamental dignity. Whether we are from the north side or from the south side, or Republican or Democrat or independent or just confused, um, no matter your unique set of foibles, I want us to be reminded that you and I are image bearers, but so is the person that's sitting next to you. And that ought to impact the way that we deal with each other and the way that we um, walk around in our everyday life with each other. This reality calls, I think, for a radical generosity among us. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul and, and 10, Paul says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. But then he follows it up with, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So when I say you are made in the image of God, I'm talking about you here in this place. Here's how Philip Ryken explains this verse in his commentary on Galatians. Christians, therefore, are particularly bound to do good to one another. Every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity. And if I can afford it for active exertion and pecuniary relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested with myself in the blood and love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and he considers everything done to his poor, afflicted brother as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. So not only am I made in the image of God, but you are made in the image of God, and that ought to impact how we relate to each other. Now the final implication of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is that they are made in the image of God. This is where I think the rubber meets the road of our faith. For most of us, it is very easy for us to believe that I am made in the image of God. It is still pretty easy, though maybe slightly less so, for me to believe that you are made in the image of God. But the reality is, and the difficult reality is, that so are they. All the people outside of these four walls also bear the image of the one that created them. And because of that, they have fundamental dignity. Now, in the Western world, we have these sort of hierarchies of value. And where you fall in these hierarchies depends on all sorts of characteristics about you. Depend on your religion, on your sex, your race, your age, your marital status, your social standing. All sorts of things impact your value on this hierarchy that we have. And the church has, I'm afraid, adopted many of these hierarchies as well. But these hierarchies do violence to the image of God in 
our fellow man. Now you may be thinking, oh no, here he goes. This is one of these younger, youngish, youngish maybe guys, and he's concerned about social issues and he's about to try to turn me into some sort of social justice warrior. Um, but that's, that's not what I want to do at all. Um, the word social justice warrior has become a sort of pejorative in our Christian community. And I, I want to I drop that term and I want to talk about just Christian social action here for just a couple of minutes, right? So it's a slightly different way of saying maybe the same thing. For the Christian, social action is not about correcting bad behavior. Christian social action has to be about union with Christ and reconciliation with our brothers and with our sisters. Christian social action is about recognizing the image of God in someone else, in our neighbor, and moving toward them in love with the ultimate goal of seeing them reconciled to God. But at a minimum, love demands that we move toward our neighbor, that we do something. To tell a starving brother that you love him without attempting to rectify his hunger, if you can, is not love at all. As Pastor Eric says, love is a well-reasoned concern for another. It is wanting the good of our brother over and above our own good. It is me wanting your good, even if it costs me something, right? So with this in mind, I want to talk about a couple of different they's that we sometimes encounter. About nine or ten months ago, a local judge asked me if I would be willing to represent parents who had had their children removed from their custody by the Department of Family Protective Services, what we used to call CPS. Now, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I said, yeah, I think I will we'll, we'll do that for you. Now, I hold Mike Hall mostly responsible for this. Uh, a couple of weekends before I got this call, I spent the weekend with Mike and a few other folks from our congregation and the other Bethel congregations. I see a couple of my cohorts laughing right now. Um, in the big room downstairs, and Mike was talking to us about giving your life away. What is this thing that God has called you to do that you're uniquely gifted to do that you can pour out your life for the sake of the gospel? And then this phone call shows up. And... When I got the call, it looked and sounded like something that the Lord was probably calling me to do. And it still feels that way, even if I don't particularly like it sometimes. But in the last nine or ten months, I have stood in court and represented, I think, 84 different parents who have lost their children, had them removed for one reason or another. And I think as of Friday, right now we have between 64 and 66 active cases. The number changes quite a bit. Here are just a few quick things that, that we have learned over this time. First, a surprising number of people use drugs, hard drugs, for the first time with their parents when they're a preteen. In our office, we see people who have used methamphetamines for the first time with their parents when they were as young as 12. Let that sink in for just a minute. If you used meth with your parents when you were 12, do you think you would be a well-adjusted, well-functioning adult. Second, we've learned that drugs are incredibly hard to kick and that no amount of threatening to take your children permanently is enough to keep most people clean. Not because you don't love your kids, but because you've been using, your dr using drugs since you were in your teens and now you're in your 20s. Third, the number of children that are abused in the foster care system would stun you. Fourth, the CPS system provides a parent, and me as their lawyer, with one year to help that person get their act together. One year to complete a series of services and prove to the department that they're a safe parent and they should get their child back. Increasingly, the parents that we see have issues that we could not address adequately in five years of counseling and intense therapy. And they're, because their abuse history is so... Uh, dramatic. But here is what we've learned most vividly. And if you and I have ever talked about this away from this pulpit, maybe around the foundry, um, you have likely heard this in a slightly more colorful way. 
But there are a shocking number of people who woke up this morning, and they will wake up again tomorrow, who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not a single person in this world cares about what happens to them. Not one. Now, I was talking to a friend about this not very long ago who just could not believe it. And I told him, it's hard for us to believe. He's in my friend circle. It's hard for us to believe because he and I, I think, both know 10 people that we could call and say, listen, I need, I need $10,000 in unmarked, non-sequential bills in a bag on my front porch. And by the time you got home at night, it would be there if you really needed it. Right? But the number of people that we see who have no one who cares about them would, would shock you. Think about how profoundly sad that really is and how profoundly that would impact you as a human. Now, I know you probably think that I'm just being dramatic to make a point, but I'm not. I am not. This is the reality that lots of my parents wake up with every day. And I spend time with all of them when they come in for the first time. And one of the questions I always get around to asking is, tell me about your family. Tell me about your family. And the answer I get a disturbing number of times is, I don't have a family. Do you realize that? Do you realize how many people there are who don't have a family? And so a lot of people, these clients, I spend more time probably than I should on the phone for some of them trying to create a family. This is my first charge as their lawyer, to try to build them and create them a family of people who care about them. Right? And that is a nearly impossible task to do in a year. But I've got a couple of pastors who I can call, who I can say, listen, man, I, I've got a girl, and she needs your women. She needs your women to love her, to show her that she's worth it, and that she's valuable. Now, when they tell me I don't have a family, what they really mean is, I don't have anybody who cares about me. That's what they're really communicating to me. These people have no concept of the image of God in themselves. They don't know that it exists. And I'm not sure it's entirely appropriate as their lawyer, but who cares? We tell them all before they leave. You have value because you were made in the image of God. And all of them, all of them, all 84 of them, all 66 that I have right now, they would tell you that's the first time they've ever heard that, ever in their life, that you have value because you bear the image of the one who created you. Now, you don't have to go to CPS court to encounter some days, some people who are struggling. You can walk right down here to the foundry. You can walk right down to the foundry, and there are people in and out of there every day who, because of mental illness or some other issue, society has decided that they are unlovable. Now, one of my favorite people on the square, and maybe some of you know him, is, is a guy named Dave. Dave comes and goes, but I've, I've been knowing Dave and been seeing Dave for uh, 10 or more years off and on. Dave is profoundly mentally ill. Profoundly. And he's unmedicated, and his condition has gotten much worse over the 10 years that I have known him. Now, my favorite Dave story comes from just this past October and November. On a Saturday morning, I was in the foundry, and I saw Dave, and we sat down on the couch, and we were chatting. And the foundry baristas, by the way, they do a fantastic job of trying to, to convince these people that they have value, right? They're on the front lines every day uh, doing this with, with our folks. Dave was in the foundry, and he was talking real loudly to, to a young girl in line who did not know Dave. And so her natural inclination to think was that Dave was about to, to hurt her. And so I walked over and I said, you know, Dave is not, he's harmless. He's, he talks loud and he sounds scary because he's unmedicated, but he's harmless. And to my surprise, Dave handed me a gift. He had a book in his hand. And this book was called, I kid you not, Swanky Panky's Crazy Wisdom, $3.95. And as I opened it, I got a glimpse into, into Dave's mind and thinking, I think, 
This is also a direct quote from the book, which I thought was weird because it said spank, Swanky Panky's Crazy Wisdom, $3.95, but the book cost $15 on Amazon, which didn't make any sense at all. But one of the pieces of wisdom in there was, sw- follow this now. Now, David's paranoid schizophrenic, right? So he, he, his brain works a little differently. Swanky wants you to know that he knows that you won't believe this. He also wants you to know that he knows, you know, that he knows, you know, that all of this is for real and should be taken seriously. Swanky Panky's a righteous dude. That is Swanky Panky's wisdom, and it's worth about $3.95. But the following week, and for weeks after that, Dave comes and goes, like I said. He's between here and Longview quite a bit. The following week, I saw David on the street. And he stopped me to tell me that he loved me. And to thank me for being nice to him. And it was clear that this was not a normative experience for Dave. It just, it just wasn't. I tell you about these experiences, certainly not to toot my own horn, because there are, some of you I know, are, are doing way more than we are doing on a daily basis. But just to remind you, that no matter how mentally ill or how poor or how sinful or how destitute a human being might be, that they bear the image of the one who created them. That the Imago Dei is present, and because of its presence, we do not, as believers, have the option to discard them. Right? They are image bearers and are worthy of dignity and respect. Now, I am not trying to tell you what your particular thing is. Um, I'm just telling you that you ought to get in the game, right? You ought to do something. I'm certain that God has called you to do something because he's called you to love your neighbor. And that means moving towards them and doing something to relieve their suffering or whatever it might be that you have the power to do. Find your thing. Find your people. Find the people that need your unique set of talents and gifts and then love them like crazy. Will your heart be broken? Of course it will. Of course it will. Repeatedly. In a million pieces. And it'll hurt. But it'll be worth it. The second they I want us to consider are our non-white neighbors. You're probably thinking, why in the world is he including other races in they? The answer is simple. We are a lily-white congregation, right? Now, the statistics are that our black and Latino brothers and sisters attend church much more regular than we do. So why I, I am not describing them as they because of any reason related to their faithfulness to the message of the gospel or to the local church, but only because the reality is that we are an almost all-white congregation. Now, the topic of race is uncomfortable for for us as white folks. Uh, I recognize that. I'm not always real comfortable about talking about it, but but in general, I'm also not super worried about other people's comfort. So I will talk about it, um, and I hope you'll not tune me out just because it's uncomfortable or because you think that I'm off base. If If you think I'm off base, that's totally cool. Send your emails to Eric. He'll probably forward them to me, and then you can buy me coffee, and we can talk about why I'm off base. Um, but because of my job and my interactions with the justice system and other things, I have thought a lot about this topic. I've read a lot about it. And maybe more importantly, I've spent time asking some, some non-white brothers about their experiences and about life, the way that they live it, and I, because I want to understand their world. Now, like many of you, I grew up in <clears throat> rural East Texas, Brownsburg to be exact, 25 miles out west of here. On, on 31. I grew up in a thoroughly integrated school district, and I played sports. And because of those two things, I had many friends from a young age that did not look like me. Um, I can still remember my first encounter with real overt racism, though. Um, I was in the seventh grade, and we had a basketball game out of town. And the town that we were going to go to I won't call the name, but it was one of these towns that were known back in the day as a sundown town. 
And a sundown town was a town where blacks knew they weren't allowed to be after dark. There were signs explicitly that said, you're not welcome here after dark, right? And so this town was historically one of those towns. This is 1993 or 1994. And I remember a couple of our friends were not allowed to go to the game because their parents were afraid for their safety in 1993. Now, this was the first time I think I knew racism was a real thing. Um, and you know, we have, as Christians have our own sordid history with this topic, right? It was a Christian, um, the Archbishop of Constantinople in around 370 AD who first espoused the idea because slavery was rampant across the Christian world that, that slavery was wrong. But of course, as recently as 150 years ago, we split our country over this issue. Unless we think it was those people doing it, some of the staunchest defenders of African chattel slavery were Southern Christian pastors. Maybe you even know that the Southern Baptist Convention was founded in 1845, specifically over disagreements about this issue. Now, in his book, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis, Christian historian Martin All, he outlines all of these debates the debates amongst the Southern Baptists with the Northern Baptists, and then the, the debates among Southern Presbyterians about the Civil War and about slavery in general. I would commend that book to you greatly if, you, if you're interested in this topic because he goes to texts of sermons where Southern pastors defended the institution of slavery and even said that it was God's will. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. This guy's talking about politics. I'm not interested in that, but I'm not. My wife can tell you that I have no toleration for politics and, and not much for politicians, that I had my day in that world, and I, I'm, I'm, it's behind me. This is not a political issue. This is an issue of the image of God in our brothers. I'm not trying to organize you into some great political movement, but the, the, the reality is that we do have a race problem in our country. It will not be solved by presidents or senators and I've talked to a local pastor about this, and we've, we've talked about ways we might be able to start some things to try to resolve some of these issues, but, but we've, we've agreed that it'll be solved around dinner tables and backyard barbecues with people that we don't know, who don't look like us, and whose world we don't understand, right? We will not always agree with those people, but after consistently breaking bread together, there will be an understanding that will help us believe the best about each other, Right? And that could make a world of difference. Here's what I think that consistent breaking of bread would do. When some incident happens that we don't understand, some issue that's around race, you got somebody you can call. I've got that guy. I've got those guys that I can call and say, tell me what your perspective is on this and why, what am I missing? What do I not know? And, and that guy knows he can pull the lapel of my jacket and say, you need to tone it down just a little bit, chief. You're, you're missing this or that or the other thing. And it's helpful to have someone who loves you, who will correct you, who will tell you where you're wrong, and who will do that um, and believe the best about you all the while, despite your, your foibles. So I'm asking you, imploring you to care about the plight of your non-white neighbors and to at least consider the possibility that the world they live in is more difficult than the world that you live in. Now, Eric always says, we have an option of taking the plane off, but, but the plane has to be landed. And here's how I want to try to, to land this plane. The idea that we are, in, we are made in the image of God is massively impactful. It is massively impactful in how we deal with each other, how we think about ourselves, and how we deal with everybody else out there. It gives us a fundamental dignity that can't be stripped away by somebody else or by our own sin. But here's the really good news. Adam was created to represent the glory of God in the world. But Adam was just a shadow, a representation of God's nature. And after Genesis 3, he and we are very dim shadows. But Adam, as the image bearer, is not the end of the story. You, as the image bearer, is not the end of this story. There is a new and better Adam 
a new and better image bearer, of which Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now the writer of Hebrews tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the better Adam. Adam is a shadow, but he is the exact imprint of God. The exact representation of who God is and what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is the exact imprint, imprint of God's nature. Now this new and better image bearer, this perfect image bearer, is reconciling all things to himself. And by faith, we are being recreated by God in his image, in the image of this last Adam. The call to us is simply to believe. And in believing, have life in his name. And wait for the day when we will perfectly reflect the glory of the one that created us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its ability to impact us. And we thank you for your presence in our life and your presence in our church. And Lord, I pray um, that as we leave here, that we will be mindful of the fact that, that all of the folks that we encounter in here on the street bear the image of you, the one who created us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.